Well, that was a choice of mine on, on July 30th, 1980. Um, it was either going to be a gift and I could choose to open it or I could choose to let it sit there. And I chose to open it. I chose to embrace, you know, that day and everything that, that happened with that day. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 221, Jeff Glassbrenner teaching us how to make the most out of life. Hello, friends. Kurt here. Happy Thanksgiving to you. You know, we have so much to be thankful for, not only in this country, but around the world. Everyone who's listening today, we hope that you can truly be grateful. That attitude of gratitude adds so much to your own life, but it also makes life so much more worth living. Thanksgiving today in the United States, and so we are taking a little time off to celebrate that holiday with our families. This is going to be a holiday rerun. This is Jeff Glassbrenner, and he did such a fabulous job of explaining why we can be thankful that I thought it would be the perfect show for a Thanksgiving special. Hope this finds you well. Happy Thanksgiving again, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. I have a wonderful guest for you today. Jeff Glassbrenner just returned from Nepal where he summited Everest successfully on May 18th. Jeff has been an athlete for most of his life. He has completed 25 Ironman triathlons. He's also a motivational speaker, professional basketball player, and a world champion in some various areas. And here's the kicker. Jeff did all this with only one leg. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, Jeff, you also were a Paralympic athlete three times, and you won multiple golds. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, three-time Paralympian, two-time world champion, and a five-time national champion. So for wheelchair basketball, I also have an individual world scoring record. So in the 2004 National Championship game, the game, I scored a record setting 63 points and had 27 rebounds. And just to prove that I am a team player, I want everyone to know that I did have one assist. Very important. <laughs> one assist. Good. That's awesome, man. So we got to hear this story. I mean, you've done so much with your life, and we're going to run out of time to talk about all of it. But I really want to talk about what you just completed. I would like to start out by talking about Everest. So how did you get started climbing? So I got started climbing. I was introduced to um, climbing at Earth Treks in Golden, Colorado by a, an organization called Paradox. And so they have a uh, disabled climbing. They, they give instructions and they have different camps. And so I was introduced to, to go there. My daughter has a seizure disorder. And so that's why we moved to Colorado about two years ago. And so it was something that we could do together. And it was amazing for those two hours that we get to climb in the gym. She never had a seizure. And so it was something we could do. And then after the first night, 
um, the team said that, hey, well, one of our teammates broke a leg and they were going to go climb the Grand Tetons um, in two days. And so they're like, you know, you seem like you're in good shape. You want to go climb uh, with us. And I was like, yeah, I've never won for turning down an opportunity. So two days later, we went and climbed the Grand Tetons and just really fell in love with uh, climbing and mountaineering. And then I loved it so much that uh, two two years ago um, that I, uh, I climbed and summited uh, Aconcagua, the highest point outside of the Himalayas at 22,842 feet. And kind of the interesting thing there is that was my first time ever sleeping in the tent. So me <laughs> wow. and my life, yeah, so me and my life, I've always been trying to, you know, um, push the envelope, um, get out of my comfort zone and, and to try different things and see how far I can go. Oh, that's really fun. So Aconcagua down in South America. Yes. Well, congratulations on that one, too. Thank you. That was the start of it. And then at the summit of Aconcagua, um, my guide, uh, he had he'd actually summited Everest without oxygen. And he's like, there's no reason why you can't do this. He goes, you're physically you know, in shape enough. You just have to get a different leg made uh, to make that uh, to happen. And so that started my, my climbing bug and that started my uh, drive to, to, to stand in the highest point in the world. And, and so after that, I was full force uh, onto Everest. Well, congratulations on your Everest climb in Aconcagua and all the other peaks that you've summited in, in the process. Really cool stuff. So tell us, what is it like? to climb Everest? That's a lot of hard work. Um, For one, it takes a lot of preparation. And so I had to do a lot of training in and around Golden, where I live. Um, So it's nice that I had a lot of 14ers there to climb and and to practice with and to try the new equipment and and my new leg. And so, yeah, to climb it, it uh, it took two months door to door. And so I left left the Denver uh, airport on the 31st of March, and and then I didn't return until just about the the last part of May. And, you know, all along through there, you know, the first two days um, we were in Kathmandu. um, We were just getting our gear check, and we were getting everything prepared, and we got to see, you know, some of the sites in Kathmandu. And we got to witness firsthand, you know, some of the devastating effects of, you know, last year's earthquake where 9,000 mm. people died and pretty much destroyed that city. And so that was um, that was really um, interesting to, to see and, and to be a part of. But then we went uh, from Kathmandu, we flew to Lukla, which is considered one of the most dangerous airports in the world. So both ends of the runway are kind of ramped. And so we're taking this twin engine plane and our whole team is in there, and uh, we, we made a successful landing, and the, the, the pilot didn't even turn off both of the engines, you know, for fear of not getting the other one started. So that's uh, that's at 9,400 feet in Lukla. So from there, we got out of the plane real quickly and uh, got our gear together, and then we started the nine-day, 40-mile trek to base camp. Mm. And, and that was uh, pretty neat just to... Um, we had to do that to walk slowly to climatize and get our body used to, you know, the the, the higher altitudes. Um, it was pretty neat all throughout, uh, you know, the, the tea houses that we stayed at. There's lots of little kids, and, and I always wear shorts when I can. And so they're walking up and running up and touching my leg, and, and uh, it was really neat. They'd never really seen um, that before. And so I think it was great to to be there, a part of that, and have, you know, them maybe see something a little different. Oh, yeah. That is – it's really cool when you can interact with people from around the globe and touch lives and provide some sort of a, an exchange. You know, I have not been in Nepal, 
but I uh, did five weeks in Kenya, and we ended up in some areas that were very, very remote. And the children there had not seen anyone with white skin. So it was a similar thing. Right. They would come yeah. running out and try to rub it off, and they'd rub their fingers right. together. And it was, it was just wonderful to interact with them and to uh, make that right. connection. So really cool. Yeah. So that was amazing. Then we, we arrived at base camp, and then the tent living began. So at the lower parts in base camp, we – we each had a three-person tent, and just one—you know—each person had a, a, a three-person tent. And after that, we, uh, you know, got all of our gear in place, and, and then we went through two puja ceremonies. And so the the puja ceremonies is when the like a high lama will come in, and the monks will come in and give us blessing uh, to go, you know, have safe passage up the mountain. And it's uh, usually about a two-hour ceremony, and so they they bless the food and. They bless our equipment, and uh, it's really a neat, uh, neat experience to be a part of. But then after um, the puja ceremony, uh, it was kind of like gym class. We uh, all the climbers, there's ten of us in our group, uh, line up on one side, and then ten Sherpa line up on the other. And so then we get paired off. And uh, the interesting part is I'm wearing shorts, and everyone can see that I'm missing my leg. And everyone's getting paired off, and I finally get paired off with my Sherpa, and his name was Lakpa Sherpa. He was 21 years old. He had summited one time, and you should have seen the visual disappointment in this man's face when he oh, drew no. the short saw with the one-legged guy. And uh, so that was kind of kind of interesting at first, but something that I, I truly expected. Um, then the three days after that, we went uh, and had some technical training through, through some of the ice fall parts and did some pretty strenuous uh, hikes. In every of every one of those days, um, I was the first one back to camp. I was the first one through the the technical part. And it was really neat. At the end of that three days, my my Sherpa uh, taps me on the shoulder and he he points to the you know Everest and he's like, "We can do it." And uh, and I smile. And I'm like, "That's why I'm here." And so after that, you know, it never my leg really was never a problem between uh, the two of us. He knew that I was uh, fully capable of. Uh, of getting up that mountain and that, and that trust, uh, started from that point on. Mm, that's wonderful. So the climb itself, how did that go for you? So the climb itself is, is pretty difficult and pretty long. And so we'd have to do, um, three acclimatization hikes up the mountain. So it's not like climbing Everest where you just start at the bottom and you, you march your way up to the top. So we had to take, uh, the two acclimatization hikes, we'd have to start um, at midnight. So we'd wake up about 10 o'clock, have breakfast or supper or whatever you wanted. And then uh, we were boots marching on the mountain at, uh, at 12 o'clock at midnight. And the reason we, we climb at night is just because um, the ice fall is more stable with the colder temperatures. And so we start there and, and we head up with our headlights on and we're crossing uh, ladders and we're, you know, climbing up ladders and, and all the time we're on our fixed line and all the time we're feeling safe, but all the time that we know that there's seracs above us that could break off at any time. And so the biggest way I can describe the ice fall would be like a five hour obstacle course. You're, you're trying to move uh, quickly, efficiently, and safely. Um, about three hours into our hike, we heard this big snap or this big whip and all of a sudden a uh, serac about 30 feet in front of us broke off and mm. landed right on our, our path. And so if we were 30 feet uh, further up the, uh, the mountain, um, I definitely wouldn't be talking to you today. Um, so it was definitely a sobering feeling of knowing that, you know, it's very dangerous. Um, obviously, it's Everest, but um, it's something that uh, we all signed up for and we kept on moving. And so from there, we went to uh, Camp 1. 
and we spent the night and for me that was my hardest night on the mountain i I woke up to a condition called cheyenne stokes um so it's altitude related um so your respiration rate slows and your your um your heart rate slows and all of a sudden you get behind on breathing and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just gasping for breath you know you think you're suffocating you think you're drowning um so it was a very kind of weird feeling and that was the time that I started second guessing myself you know is this worth it is this uh, really what I want to do you know I have two kids at home you know um and so I just re- I was reminded you know at that point at my low point that something my dad said when I was having a hard time dealing with my disability he said you can either be powerful or you can be pitiful but you can't be both Mm. And so from that point forward, you know, I kind of knew which one I wanted to be. And so with those, uh, you know, kind of encouraging or, or poignant words, uh, uh, I, I continued on. Wow. You know, I want to talk briefly about the Altitude Challenge. Um, you live in Golden. You climbed several mountains before, 14ers in Aconcagua, right? Um, right. So this came as a surprise when this happened, I guess. For for the altitude, the giant folks, yes, it completely did. I mean, I'd read about it and heard about it, but I'd never experienced it before. And so, um, when it happens, you you feel miserable. You feel like you're gonna die. Ugh. And uh, so, yeah, so very unique. Um, luckily, I only had it once. A bunch of my teammates had it um, every night, and so um, I was very fortunate to to only experience that once. But that once was enough. It was uh, definitely a reminder of you know, the the effects that altitude can bring and, and have on your body. Yeah, one reason I wanted to bring it up is a lot of climbers do listen to the show, and it's just a reminder that just because, you know, you've done 25 mountains and uh, the altitude was okay, the 26th might be a different story. That's exactly it. Yeah, and some of our Sherpas, that's the same thing too. We had one of them that uh, summited six times, and, and then all of a sudden had uh, pulmonary edema, and so... Um, that was an issue, you know, and you wouldn't think that would happen to a Sherpa, but I think that he may have pushed it a little bit hard and, and, and got dehydrated or something, but uh, something definitely changed and he had to, uh, call it a, a season. So wow, it can happen to anyone. Sure. Okay. So you've done your camp one and I guess you do that three times. Yeah. So we go um, from there, then we go up to camp two and then we spent two nights there and then all the way down to, to, you know, through the Kimball ice falls. And then once we're back at uh, base camp, we have about five days before the second rotation starts. And those five days you're trying to eat and drink as much as you can to kind of repair the body uh, to get back to where you want to be and, and, and gain all the weight that you've lost. And then after that five days, again, we repeat the, the same process. We go up to the Kimball ice falls, um, you know, it's about a five hour, um, obstacle course through that. I like to call it. And then we went past camp one this time, and then we spent three days at camp two and then one, one night at camp three. And then we went all the way back down. And then after that, we spent another five days trying to rest and recover. And, uh, we're waiting for a five day weather window is what we're actually waiting for. And so we finally got that, um, that weather window, and we uh, we took off for the summit rotation, and we again went through the Kimbu Ice Falls, went past Camp One, and we spent the the night at Camp Two. The game plan was to wake up um, at Camp Two and and head on to Camp Three. Well, we learned that night that the weather when window changed, and so we'd be in a holding pattern. Well, that holding pattern turned out to be six days at Camp Two. Wow! And and that was unexpected. I mean, luckily we had resources uh, in place in case something happened, but 
you know, as a climber, you know, and as an active person, like I am, you know, we, we sat in the tent, like 23 of the 24 hours, you know, it's just uh. Uh, kind of waiting it out. And, uh, during those six days, I lost about 20 pounds. Um, and so just at, at the higher altitude, your, your body's working so much harder. You don't feel like eating and you don't really feel like doing much. Um, so it, you know, one thing to lose, you know, all that weight is you lose a lot of energy. But for me, um, it was extra hard because my leg doesn't fit the same if I lose weight. And so I had to be very attentive to, to that. So normally I don't wear any socks on my stump. Um, this time I had to wear 15 plies of, of, of socks on my stump to help, 15. you know, fill the void. Yeah. So I had, <laughs> I had it was kind of different. And so I had to be very attentive. This is Colorado nature photographer John Fielder. This holiday season, consider giving the gift of Colorado. I have an extraordinary 6,000 square foot gallery in Denver's art district on Santa Fe Drive. This season, I've framed for display my favorite and latest Colorado wilderness images. The detail inherent in these seven foot prints from recent summer treks into the Weminucci and Ragged's wilderness series will make you feel like you were right next to me when they happened. And my new prints from last year's remarkable fall color season will add warmth and a focal point to any home or office setting. The gallery has a full selection of my popular Colorado books, calendars, and holiday and note cards. Most are signed personally by me. My latest book is Wildflowers of Colorado, a collection of my favorite wildflower images made over the past 20 years. I even discuss where I go to photograph the best wildflower meadows in northern, central, and southern Colorado. Just don't tell me if you get a better photo than me. The gallery is located in Denver at 833 Santa Fe Drive. We're open Tuesdays through Saturdays, 9 to 5. Visit johnfielder.com for complete information about the gallery, print pricing, to see all of my books and calendars, and to learn about the photography workshops I'll teach around Colorado in 2017, and even the one at Alaska's Inside Passage next July. That's at johnfielder.com. You know, with anything that we have, you know, you have to be flexible and you have to be able to, you know, think on your feet and, and move forward. But after that six days and that big weight loss, you know, we, uh, we took off to uh, camp three and we spent the night there at camp three and, and we started using uh, oxygen that night. Um, and then we woke up to the morning thinking everything was going to be great, but then there was like 40 to 50 mile an hour winds. And so we were going to take off early in the morning, but we decided to, you know, wait a little bit. Uh, to see if the winds would die down and make it easier for us. But we waited about four hours and then took off. And then like an hour into it, it was pretty much a kind of a whiteout. It was pretty uh, pretty windy, like 50-mile-an-hour gusts. And uh, it was it was a challenge. And so for me, that was one of the hardest days that we had on the mountain, going from Camp 3 to Camp 4. So it was supposed to take us around uh, eight hours. I think it ended up taking us around 12 just because of the the conditions. Wow. And so we, yeah, so we, 
couple of times we were without oxygen for a, a little span until we got to our next, um, you know, stash of the oxygen on the mountain. Mm. So, so once we, once we got there, we got to camp four, we were supposed to arrive at two in the afternoon, but we didn't arrive until eight that evening, um, just because of our delays and our late start and, and the slower progress up the mountain. And so we were supposed to summit that night at 10 o'clock, we were supposed to leave, but arriving in late at eight o'clock, we didn't really have that, that opportunity to rest up and, and rehydrate. And so we decided to spend um, a night at Camp 4. So that's, you know, the death zone, so above 26,000 feet. So that's pre- pretty hard on your body and not really suggested to do for, you know, like prolonged periods. But so we spent the night, didn't sleep much. Um, it was just hard to breathe even on oxygen and to move around. And, and just being in the death zone, you kind of, you know, think about it a lot. But the next day, um, we woke up and had breakfast and tried to eat and drink as much as we could. And then that night, um, we headed for the summit at 10 o'clock that night. And uh, it was uh, it was cold and uh, and crowded. And uh, all it it took us uh, 10 hours and 25 minutes from camp uh, from camp four to reach the summit. And that whole time we're doing the rest step, you know, we're taking a rest step, locking off our leg and taking three big breaths and then taking another step. And so imagine doing that for uh, 10 hours and like 25 minutes. It was uh, it was pretty challenging. But uh, the views as the, the sunlight was coming up were just so incredible. Wow. So how did it feel to stand on top of Everest? It, it felt amazing. You know, I had my mask on and my goggles on, but under that uh, mask and goggles were all smiles and just uh, just the most amazing feeling. Um, you know, looking out, they say you could see for almost like 1,200 miles. You know, you could mm. um, you could you could see forever. It just it really felt like I was on top of the world, and and I wasn't just there by myself. You know, I had a lot. You know, so many people helped me get to that that summit to help me get to that the highest point in the world, and so. You know, I uh, I really appreciate uh, the support that I had and, and the love that I had from my family to, to go after that goal. Well, congratulations. It's uh, an amazing trip. Not everybody who tries makes it. You know, it's uh, it's not for the faint of heart. It It's an amazing feat that you accomplished. And so I am impressed and amazed anytime someone climbs Everest, you know. So congratulations. Ah. That's awesome. Thank you. Let's contrast that a little bit, Jeff. Let's go back and tell us briefly the story of how you lost your leg and what it took for you to become an athlete and to become active in adventure sports. Yeah, for sure. Um, I grew up in uh, Basketball, Wisconsin, which is in the southwest corner of Wisconsin, and it's a small farming community. And on July 30th, you know, like most eight-year-old boys, you know, I was a shadow of my dad. So, you know, whatever my dad set out to do, you know, I tagged along or helped out or got in the way in any way that I could. Well, that day we uh, had the task of going out into the hay field and cutting some hay. And so my dad and I get the tractor ready. And I remember we're going out the driveway and my mom yells her usual, you know, you guys be careful. And we're like, yeah, yeah, right, whatever. We got to the hay field and, and start cutting the hay and, and we hit a rock. And, you know, there's lots of rocks in the southwest part of Wisconsin, and that's the reason why I'm along, you know, so I could help out my dad. So my dad turned off the tractor and asked me to go do my usual. Well, my usual was to get off of my safe spot, go around the tractor, remove the rock, and remove all the extra alfalfa on the mower, then quickly get back onto my safe spot. So when he did that, I was super happy to help him out, quickly off my safe spot, did my task, and went to get back on the tractor. But before I reached there, my dad had turned on the machine. 
Um, in a split second, you know, my life had changed forever. You know, my pant leg became entangled in the power takeoff. If you don't know what the power takeoff is, it's on the back of the tractor. It spins really fast, very powerful, but very unforgiving. Another kind of way to describe it is like the tractor was a large pencil sharpener and my leg was a pencil. You know, in that split second, I just remember laying there on the ground, you know, looking down on my leg and I could just see a bone sticking out or just a few seconds earlier, you know, I had my whole leg. I also remember looking to my right, you know, I could see my shoe with my foot still in it. So my Mm. dad, you know, quickly seeing what happened to me, quickly turned off the tractor and quickly picked me up. And then uh, luckily had the presence of mind to apply a human hand tourniquet. Um, You know, like the the doctors would later on would say that that little act right there, you know, saved my life, you know, because I was bleeding out. But the biggest thing that I remember is like crying to my dad. I remember crying because I thought I'd never be able to run or never be able to swim again. Um, as an eight-year-old boy, those were my two favorite activities. And my son, my dad just looked me in the eyes and just said, son, let's just get through the day. You know, we got more things to worry about. But from there, they took me to the University of Wisconsin hospitals, um, where I spent the next 47 days of my life fighting for it. You know, my uh, heart had stopped on two different occasions because of all the blood loss that was going on. I also had to undergo 13 different operations, you know, to try to rid my body of all those infections. But the thing I remember most about the hospital is leaving the hospital. When I left there, the doctors handed me a sheet of paper with a whole bunch of limits of, of things that I could and couldn't do. And so, and for me, at the top of that list was sports. Um, so they told me that I didn't, I couldn't do sports because I was either afraid to hurt myself or hurt other kids. And so that was pretty hard to digest that piece of paper. And so wow. after that, after that, you know, the sad thing about it is I believed everything that was on that list of, of of limitations. Um, I didn't play sports. I didn't do anything until I went to to school at the University of Wisconsin, Whitewater, and and I discovered wheelchair basketball. And uh, and that that really changed my life. And it's funny, like, I was recruited, not like a lot of college people recruited. I was recruited hopping to the bathroom. This guy stops me in the hallway. He's like, man, you're missing your leg. And so right away, I'm thinking to myself, this guy must have been the valedictorian of his class. (laughs) Obvious, right, buddy? But then he's like, no, there's a wheelchair basketball team. You should come check it out. And uh, luckily, uh, I I did check it out, and it was so amazing. Um, I got to see him play wheelchair basketball for the first time, and uh, I got to see how competitive they were. And it was was truly amazing to be a part of that. I, uh, I met my coach, like, shortly thereafter, and, and, you know, it was kind of, I was lucky because I didn't really have any bad habits developed or anything like that, and so my coach, you know, he stressed to me the only way to get to the top or the only way to be successful at it was to have a strong foundation. So my coach would teach me the very basics, give me a more advanced skill until I perfected the, the one after that. And, uh, after, after months of training, um, you know, my coach said that, that I should try out for the national team and, uh, with lots of hard work and lots of, uh, help from others. Um, I made my first national team in 1997. You know, I, I'm going back to that sheet that they gave you at the hospital and thinking, what were they thinking? You know, yeah. today, today is much different. Now I think, uh, you know, through other people before there's, there's limitless possibilities, but back then, you know, 30 plus years ago, um, they didn't want me to get hurt. They didn't want me to hurt other kids or something in the playground. And so it's a different mentality, but it takes, you know, athletes and people like myself and others to, to prove that, that anything is possible. 
And uh, I, I think that that's great. And so my favorite part is mentoring someone else that's lost a leg or, or someone else that's going through hardships because, you know, if you truly want to do it, you can truly accomplish it. Oh, yeah. Well, on that note, tell us about Paradox Sports. So Paradox Sports is actually a disabled climbing community that uh, provides, you know, instruction and actually really provides us a community of, of people like-minded. Like if they have a disability, you know, they can pair them up with a, another amputee. Um, so basically it provides instruction and it helps people um, get out there. And I think that's the, the whole point of this podcast is that, you know, no matter what you're into, you can find a mentor, you can find a community and, and they'll help you, you know, take it to the next level. And I, I think that that's what Paradox does. Um, that is done for me and my daughter. And it's also done it for countless others. And so it's based out of Boulder, Colorado, and it was started in 2007. So it's uh, been helping a lot of people, including, uh, you know, the wounded um, veterans that come back and, and other people with farm accidents or, or other disabilities in life. Sure. So do you know what their website is? Yeah, it's paradoxsports.org. Uh, paradoxsports.org. So yep, and so you can check it out. You can either volunteer to help belay someone or to be a mentor um, there's even uh, stuff on there that you can donate or, or be a part in other ways. And so I encourage you all to check that out because, yeah, if you see someone with a disability, they want to climb just as much as you do. Um, they're just going to have to have different instructions or different technology to, to make that possible. So, listeners, if you love climbing, uh, give Paradox Sports a, a try. I think that that sounds like an incredible organization. Really, really cool. It is. So then you got involved in basketball and you went for the national team and you ended up doing the Paralympic sports. You uh, you already told us that you won gold how many times? So I have two gold medals. Yeah. So that's uh, that's an awesome uh, achievement and something that I am very proud of because as an athlete, you know, there's no greater feeling of wearing that USA uniform with that gold medal around your neck, you know, listening to the national anthem. You know, uh, my life has always been kind of going for those gold medal moments, whether it's climbing Everest, whether it's doing Ironmans or whether it's playing wheelchair basketball. It's uh, just going out there and, and trying to compete at the highest level, no, no matter what odds you're faced against. Oh, yeah. And you and I visited a little bit before we started uh, recording the show here, and we were talking about how everybody has challenges. You know, for you, you're an amputee. That's a challenge, right? Yeah, you can see my you can see my challenge, but for other people, it's more of the mental side. And so, you know, um, when people have injuries or accidents, it's the uh, the emotional side or the mental side. You know, oh, how is this person gonna you know look at me, or or am I gonna be the same? And so, my favorite thing is like sometimes I'll go talk to some of the returning vets, and they'll be young, and you know, when they leave, they're just you know on top of the world, and they come back, and maybe they're missing a leg like myself. And the biggest question that I get is, you know, um, they're, they're all worried about, well, how many, how am I going to be with the ladies? I'm like, well, how are you going to be with the ladies? How were you with the ladies before you left? You know? I mean, so <laughs> right. it's, just a, it's, a, it's the mindset. And so they think that everything is going to be the different. Um, but I think that if you, you know, kind of get over the mental side of it, the physical side is not, is not going to be the challenge at all. Hey friends, Kurt here. Happy holidays. You know, I wanted to remind you about the 180 stove and the 180 flame as possible holiday gifts for your loved ones. These are lightweight backpacking stoves. 
that burn natural fuels. So we're talking about twigs, grass, leaves, pine cones. If it burns, you can cook with it. They also make wonderful windbreaks and stable cooking surfaces for alcohol burners and other lightweight stoves that need that extra bit of support. These stoves can be found at 180tac.com. The 180 stove is just 10.4 ounces. You have a cooking surface as large as a burner on your home range, and you can even grill steaks, fish, fantastic for larger groups for backpacking. The 180 Flame at 6.4 ounces is a personal stove. It's excellent for boiling water quickly and efficiently. You don't have to carry fuel. You don't have to buy fuel. If you have an outdoors person in your family, then the 180 Stove or the 180 Flame will make a wonderful gift for the holidays. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Youngest son Luke summited his first fourteener last weekend, and congratulations, Luke! Awesome. Yeah. Well, as always, you know the first time to altitude like that, it's a lot of work. He's uh, twelve yeah. years old, and he's uh, he's not a real big guy yet. Although I expect he will be soon. But on the way up, I, I finally had to just say to him, "Dude, you climb it here," and I tapped his head. You know, uh-huh. I said, your legs are working hard, right? Your lungs are working hard. Your heart is pumping away. Right. But right here, you tap his head again. This is where you climb a mountain. It is exactly it. And that is you know, all of it. You know, it doesn't matter the, the physical part. But if you, you know, wake up being prepared mentally, emotionally, you can you can pretty much uh, summit anything. And so that's pretty cool that Luke did that. That's awesome. Well, it you know, it's a paradigm for all of life. Like you said, you know, you wake up prepared, you go for it. If you have the the mental fortitude, you can accomplish anything. Right, exactly. And if you surround yourself with the right people, too. Like, I've been very fortunate enough to have mentors in everything that I've ever done, whether it be a wheelchair basketball or triathlons or or climbing Mount Everest. I I think the best way to get successful is to have that mentor. You know, someone that's been there and done that. So it takes away all of the, the dumb learning out, I call it. And so, and then you can just get on to knowing what you need to know through those mentors. And so I think uh, I've been very blessed to have uh, great mentors in my life and, and I hope to be 
uh, mentor to other amputees and, uh, and other climbers as well. Well, to that end, you are a motivational speaker, so tell us about that. Yes, I do. Um, lots of uh, motivational speaking for companies and a lot of uh, insurance companies. So Lincoln Financial is my major sponsor, and so I go in and talk about you know, my Everest climb. I talk about setting goals and, uh, and to almost uh, overcoming any odds that are in front of you. And so I go in and talk about you know, they have disability insurance that they sell, so I'll I'll put that uh, that face on that piece of paper that they sell. So it kind of puts the human side of it um, with that. But yeah, with that, um, I'm very lucky to to go and travel and to and to share my story and to share my experience about uh, living life at the fullest and a lot of fun. So if people would like to invite you to speak, then how can they reach you? Yeah, so I have a website. It's called TeamClass.com. And so check out the website. I also have a, a book on there. It's called The Gift of a Day. And so I invite them to check that out as well. Um, it tells, talks about my uh, adventures uh, post-Everest. And so that's, uh, that's uh, available at teamglass.com. And that's T-E-A-M, of course, G-L-A-S, yep. just one S. So yep. teamglass.com. I always say don't make a out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Only one S. Yep, very cool. So I saw the the little summary of your book, and I don't have a copy of it, but it looked really, really cool. And I said, "Man, I got to read this. It, I'm sure it's something from which I could learn a lot." Yeah, I think so. Um, it's the aptly named "The Gift of a Day." You know, so when some when something happens to us, anything at all, you know, we have a choice. You know, we can either deal with it positively, or we can deal with it negatively. This is a book on how to deal with it positively the story about you know me doing just that and uh encourage everyone to check it out so the gift of a day i mean you gave us a summary of the book but specifically what do you mean by the gift of a day well that was a choice of mine on on july 30th 1980 um it was either going to be a gift and i could choose to open it or i could choose to let it sit there and i chose to open it. i chose to embrace you know that day and everything that that happened with that day. You know, it was a bad day, but it also turned out to be the greatest day of my life. You know, if I didn't have that day, I I wouldn't have been able to play wheelchair basketball in 42 different countries. I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, you know, have, you know, meet my wife. I met her at one of the the events that I did. So without that bad day happening, I wouldn't have met her. And then we wouldn't have had our two beautiful children, Gavin and Grace. And so I, I believe that one day can set up everything, but it can set it up for both a positive way and it can also set it up in a negative way. And so I think that that's a, it's a personal choice that when something, when something does happen, you know, can you view it as an opportunity or can you view it as an obstacle? Hmm. Yeah. Good words, man. So you played basketball professionally in Madrid for two years and also a year in Rome. What was that like? Oh, that's incredible. Um, cause I get to, you know, stay with the team and be with the team. So I wasn't a tourist in those countries. Um, I live like the locals and, uh, I get to truly experience what it's like to be a Spaniard or, or someone that's living in, in Rome. And it's, it's just a different way of life. It's not better. It's uh, just different. And so they're really family centered. And so a lot of times after supper, everyone in the family go out for a walk. And so I think we can learn a lot of things like that, um, that we could have, um, in, in our society, in our culture, um, everything is more family centered and, and, uh, history centered, so to speak. 
I think travel does that for people. When you see other cultures and the way that people interact, we, we can always learn something from that culture. I mean, whether it's Nepal, Rome, Madrid, um, there's a lot to be learned just by interacting with people from around the globe. Yes, actually, and wear their shoes, you know, and, and see what it's like to actually live, you know, where they live and, to, you know, have their upbringing and, and to have their way of life. And so, yeah, I, I think that's the greatest thing. And like, especially if you're, uh, if you're dating or something, the best way to know a person is to go travel with them because then you can really truly see, you know, what they're like in a, in a different situation. So for sure. Oh, yeah. I often say that you really get to know somebody when you kind of face adversity together. And, yeah. you know, travel doesn't have to be adversity, but, you know, sometimes just yeah, getting did. out of the familiar, you know, you're facing new stuff, a different environment. I mean, it throws you off center. And then who are you? Right. Yeah, exactly. It, it strips down all of the other stuff and maybe some insecurities come out and you'll learn a lot about that person. But uh, usually, hopefully for the better. Oh, yeah. I find that happens a lot with people who are not accustomed to backpacking or being in the wilderness for extended periods yeah. of time. I love to I love to take kids into the woods and and watch them kind of deal with that that the whole who am I thing. Yeah, to get, get out of their comfort zone for sure, and that's something I really love. And like for Everest, you definitely get out of your comfort zone. You're sleeping three people to a three person tent, you know, at the at the high camps, and so you're going to the bathroom with your teammates in there, and so it's something you have to get comfortable with. And uh, so yeah, uh, you definitely get out of your comfort zone in, in some of those regards. Wow. Yeah, I'll bet. So a lot of our listeners probably want to try climbing, whether it's uh, rock climbing or mountain climbing, big mountain climbing, expedition climbing. What would you recommend if someone wants to become a climber? If they want to come become a climber, you definitely, I would say, research it and try to find a mentor. Um, if, if you know someone that uh, knows someone that knows how to climb, get with that person because they'll usually steer you in the right direction. Most of the time, you know, they, they want to take you out and kind of show you the excitement of what it's like to be a climber and the things that you need to know and how to do it safely. And so for me, if you if you're able to, you know, you know, find someone that's uh, into it, um, that that you'll get a head start in all of it. And so for me, I would I would research, you know, a climbing gym that's near your area, if that's what you're interested in. Or, you know, there's lots of parks and, and things like that. Just go out and start hiking. Um, you can learn a lot just by uh, just being out there and, and being around people that have, that have done that. Mm. Yeah, good word. And especially as soon as you start hitting altitude, it is a different world. There are things you need to know. And so, yeah, I wouldn't recommend people just go do it, not without some instruction no. first. No, that's for sure, especially for the higher altitudes. But, I mean, there's there's lots of uh, hikes everywhere. You know, it can be flat. And so you can, you know, find someone that's been there and done that and then go along with that and go along with them and learn from them. And so I think that's the, the best way to get started. You know, look online and see if you can find, uh, you know, a, a trail that's near you and, and, and research what it takes to, to to be able to do that trail. Sure. Well, man, you are such an inspirational guy. You've inspired me on this show already. What inspires you? What keeps you going? Yeah, my, my daughter actually does. She has a, a seizure disorder, and so she'll have, you know, now about 30 seizures a day. And, uh, you know, you look at her, and, and whenever she has a, has a seizure, it's amazing to watch. You know, her, her arms will start shaking, her legs will start shaking. And then uh, it's like someone's taking a light switch and turning her brain off. And then about 30 seconds later, she comes back. And uh, you know, as she comes back, she's got this big smile on her face. And she goes, I'm okay, I'm okay. 
And I know that when I'm having a bad time, when I'm having a bad day that, you know, I just look at her and, you know, look how, you know, her positive attitude, her, you know, her, her just wanting to, to go on and do whatever she wants to do, you know, that ability to never give up and, and to never have that bad attitude. And so for me, she's definitely my inspiration. You know, whenever I have a hard time, I, I think about that and I think about, you know, what, it's not that bad and then get on and do what I'm doing. Cause there's going to be life seizures for all of us. It's just, you know, what path are we going to take, you know, bigger and better, or are we going to kind of give up and give in? Mm, so true. You know, I was pondering something about that this morning, just that we can make the most of life right now and choose satisfaction and joy, whatever our circumstance is. And exactly. if we do that, then life can always be good. But if we wait... Life is always good. Yeah. If we wait for life to change somehow, thinking, oh, it'll be okay when or later or once I'm able to or if I have enough money or I have enough... To, you know, if, we, if we're putting life on hold, so to speak, yeah. then I don't, I don't know that a person will ever be satisfied. You're exactly right in there. Because if you wait for the perfect time, that perfect time will never come. So you need to make the perfect time. Yeah. Today's the day for it. Beautiful story. So I was curious, earlier you said that when she went climbing to Earth Tracks, she didn't have any of the seizures. Do you know why that is? Right. Well, I think it's when she's completely engaged that and completely active that she doesn't have it. And so being on a rope, you know, climbing, you pretty much have to be in the moment. And so, um, yeah, so she never had one for two hours. So that was a really cool gift uh, um, to be able to be, uh, you know, a part of that and to take her there. But, you know, when she's off the line and when she's sitting down, then she'll have another seizure. And so um, you just have to keep her completely engaged and completely safe, but she can do it. You know, she can climb, you know, um, anything that she wants to. And so I think that that was really neat to, to be able to share that moment with her and to, and to do something together. Mm, I love it. You have any recommendations to parents out there for how to get their kids more interested in adventure sports, climbing, it could be basketball, whatever it is, right? How do you get your kids engaged? Well, first, uh, let go of the electronics. Um, I have an eight and a ten year old, and so if you if you they want to, they'll, they'll play electronics as much as uh, as much as they will or want. But um, there there comes a time where you need to get out and experience things and kind of live life and not just watch it on online or, or do something like that. But uh, for me, um, it's the biggest thing is just take your kids out and do those activities with them, you know, play basketball with them, go, go climb or go hike with them. Um, I just think that it's being a role model or being an example. Um, if they see you doing that, you know, I know that my kids, you know, know that I, I'm into outdoor stuff and that, that are, they know that I'm very active. And the same note, they want to be active and, and do that stuff as well. My son knows everything about Everest. Um, and so he's excited. He wants to do it. And so I think just being a role model to your kids and to others that, you know, that there's possibilities out there, you know, that lie outside the computer. And so if you just get out there and, and start something, you'll find something that you're interested in and then and then go for it. Mm, that's cool. You know, I have to throw this out there. It seems like in the U.S. there's an epidemic of obesity. And, it, it you know, it's it's probably the number one thing that keeps people from getting out and having fun, right? But exactly. people can start wherever they are. And you don't have to climb Everest, right? No. Maybe it's a walk around the block. Maybe it's going to the park and playing Frisbee with your kids. Whatever it is, it's getting out there and starting. I, I just want to encourage everybody you know, we've got to get off the couch. <laughs> we've exactly. got to get off the couch. 
but there's so many activities you can do, you know, just put that remote down and, and step outside and there's a whole new world to discover. And so I just think that being a role model for your kids, um, show them what it's like to be physically active and, uh, to be outdoorsy or, or just, to just to go down and play basketball or something would be, would be a great role model. But yeah, I live, yeah, um, in Arkansas, we went from the 50th fit state to Colorado, the number one fit state. So that was kind of a big switch. So mm. um, it's uh, just different with the, the food that you eat and, and, and taking care of yourself is, is much different. So, yes, yeah, so obesity is a, a bad problem. And uh, it just takes, just like Everest, one foot in front of another and a choice, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what's next on the agenda for you? So for me, I always say whenever you finish one goal, it's definitely time to start another one. For me, this is it's called the Explorer's Grand Slam. And so it is uh, the seven summits, um, but then you add skiing in the South Pole and the North Pole. And so as far as I can tell, there's only 34 people that have ever done that. So I would like to be on that list of, uh, of neat things to do and accomplish. So <laughs> Very we'll cool. You've done two of the seven now, or have you done others? I, nope, I've just uh, I've just done Aconcagua and now Everest. So I wanted to to get uh, Everest uh, kind of out of the way, just because it's it's super expensive, and I, I wanted to do it when I was you know younger, um, and so I, I wanted to do that one right away. Oh, that yeah. was the goal. So Denali is another challenge. That's going to be a big one. Yeah, so that um, potentially um, my wife and my two sisters are going to try to climb uh, Kilimanjaro with me. And mm. so we plan on doing that next June. And so for me, it's like, yeah, I want to experience that with my family and to kind of my whole goal is to get people out of their comfort zone. And so my sisters, you know, they're they're afraid of heights and, and, and all that. And so but uh, we're training and they're doing much better. And uh, we set our goal to do that next uh, June. And so my wife uh, um, has been climbing 14 years with me training and so with my sisters. Oh, that is so cool, man. Killy, that's on my list for sure. When I was in Kenya, yeah. I saw Kilimanjaro from Masaimara off in the distance. And it's like, oh, right. as a climber to see it and not do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's like it's, being a skier torture. at a ski area when you don't, you don't have a lift ticket, you know? Yeah. That's uh, not fun, but uh, hopefully someday you can do that. So, Well, congratulations for that. I, I think that's awesome. Kilimanjaro and Africa is absolutely beautiful. Love the, love yep. the country, the countries, love the terrain, love the people. It's a, uh, it's a lovely place. So that's going to be a great one. No doubt. Yeah, my wife's uh, only condition for the climb was we have to do a safari afterwards. So I think that's that's her reward. I'm like, yes, that sounds great. Oh, absolutely. We can do that. You bet. <laughs> yeah, to see to see the big game animals really being natural in their natural setting is is just a beautiful, wonderful thing. So yeah, you bet. Can't wait. <laughs> well, hey, let's one more time go over how people can get in touch with you if they want your book. Where do they go? So they go to teamglass.com, so T-E-A-M-G-L-A-S.com, and then the book is called The Gift of a Day, and then also on there you'll find uh, information on my uh, motivational speaking for for, for uh, businesses or schools or, or whatever. And Paradox Sports? And Paradox Sports is paradoxsports.org. And so, again, that's a disabled climbing community um, where they pair people up and give instructions, and they also have trips um, to, to climb. And so that's why I got introduced to all this crazy fun stuff. So, uh, amazing people and amazing organizations. So check it out. Paradoxsports.org. 
ParadoxSports.org. Okay, and you mentioned that you had a really funny, kind of disturbing funny story for us to close out the show, so let's have it. Yeah, so I summited Mount Everest and feeling like on top of the world because I was there, but then on the flight home, um, I kind of got another strike of good luck. I uh, got set, I got seated in the exit row, the emergency exit row, and so I'm wearing shorts, and so I get to my seat, super excited about the extra leg room, and all of a sudden, the, the stewardess noticed that I was an amputee, and so she comes by there and does a double check, and she's like, oh, sir, you can't sit there. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm fully capable of opening up the exit door in case of emergency. I'm fine. And she goes, no, sir, you, you're going to have to move. And I'm like, well, I just, I just summoned Mount Everest. I guarantee I can step up and move that door for you. And she goes, no, you're going to have to move. And so <laughs> the sad thing about it is uh, I had to move. And so here I was, you know, summoning Mount Everest, the highest point in the world, 29,035 feet. And uh, she thought I couldn't step over someone else two feet and open up a door. And so uh, when she looked at my legs, she saw weakness, you know, and that's part of the reason why I like doing all this kind of fun stuff, whether it's basketball or, or Ironmans or, or climbing big mountains. It's just, I want to prove to others that, you know, even if you have a disability, that anything is possible. Um, and so it was just kind of funny, disturbing, all of that, that I couldn't open the exit door and I had to move. Um, <laughs> but, it, but, uh, so that, that was kind of hard to kind of swallow, but, uh, there's teachable lessons and, uh, she wasn't going to bite on any of that. So I moved to another seat and, uh, didn't feel sorry for myself, but just kind of questioned, uh, some, some people's motives or, or some people's, uh, yeah, belief in someone with a disability. Yeah, that's a whole nother mountain to climb, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it <laughs> oh, is. Wow. Well, thanks for educating people, you know, letting us know that it, you know, it's just real. Life is real, and it is what you make it of is. it. It is. You know? And you enjoy it, yes. Well, if any of you have any idea who this flight attendant was, then make sure she listens <laughs> to this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an American Airlines. It was a, a, a carrier based out of Kathmandu, so I think there might be a whole different rules or regulations, but... It's all right. Um, I'm still going to climb another mountain, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Very good. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast. I had a ball visiting with you, and congratulations again on all of your feats. But your most recent one, getting Everest, checked off the list. I think it's awesome. So thanks for your time today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, and thank you so much for the opportunity. I encourage everyone to get out there and do something, no matter what it is. I couldn't have said it better myself. Hey, if you found today's show and other shows inspirational, then will you share this with your friends? You know, we want to help get the word out. Life is more than just being a couch potato. Get out there. Have some fun.